0: Hey, everybody. Today, we're starting a five-week series called Building Thriving Families, and I'm so excited for it. I actually think it's going to be a little mind-bending for some. The research certainly has shaken me up a bit, but what's a conversation about family without a little drama, amen? And so we're going to start with a bang today, but let's first acknowledge that family is flawed and, yes, a little awkward. Uh, There is a really funny site where people submit their awkward family photos. Uh, I'm just going to show you a few for fun at the beginning here, so check this out the caption says the year was 1992 the place Olin Mills Uh, I'm the one with the glasses braces and the mushroom cut my sister and I were wearing matching dresses my grandmother made there is so much going on in this picture I don't even know where to start right here's here's one with the caption that says this is me with my younger brother our grandparents and our father in hot pants all right one more This is my dad's family. The photo was hanging in my grandma's house for years with the caption written underneath, blew up a photo of Sister Joan. She wasn't able to be here for the photo. You can see her there in the back middle. Oh, the things we did before Photoshop. Okay, one more. This is my preschool picture. I had a fit and would not get my picture taken unless I could put my belt on my head. So my mom did what she had to do. All right, so those are funny. But more than just being awkward for a lot of people the idea of family is actually broken and even this conversation may be triggering for some it can bring up really painful memories and so we turn to the bible and uh, the Bible's actually not much better. In, in the scripture, there are only four chapters without sin. Genesis 1 and 2, and at the very end, Revelation 21 and 22. And in between, there is no shortage of tragic stories about families. Sin has run rampant on families. And so Adam and Eve married, and then they sinned. And like five minutes into their honeymoon, they have their first spat, with Adam blaming his wife for all the problems they find themselves in. They, they parent two sons. One of those sons killed the other. And so sin has been part of the family dynamic right off the bat. Jacob had 12 sons. and They, they eventually sold their younger brother into slavery. King David's son he raped his sister. Then his other son Absalom killed his brother. So, so when we consider the biblical narrative, we see generational brokenness when it comes to family. There aren't a lot of fairy tale endings even in the Bible. And families in the Bible are are just riddled with things like bad marriages, and failing fathers, and envious brothers, and scheming mothers, and adulterous husbands, and sin just warps the family in severe and lasting ways. And then on the other hand, family is a central metaphor for understanding our relationship to God. Jesus' followers are called children of God. Even Jesus' brothers and sisters. And in many of the letters, members of the church are referred to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what do we do with family in 2023? Well, I would argue that we are currently living through one of the most rapid changing times of the definition of family in all of human history. Nuclear families, single-parent families, extended families, same-sex families, blended families, step-families, adoptive families. Now now in the past few years we've been told that men can have babies. And I I heard a story where someone called a campground in Seattle to see if their kids were welcome. They saw online that the campground's banner said family-friendly, only to call and find out that family-friendly meant that they could bring their dogs. And for context, there are more pet dogs in Seattle than there are children. I'm telling you all this to simply suggest we are in desperate need of some clarity around this subject of family. It's absolutely vital for us to know what we believe, where we belong. And so I've titled today's message, Back to the Basics. And the first and most basic thing we need to to establish is this. Family was God's idea. And if he invented it, he gets to define the terms. And this couldn't be more critical to understand. It's it's a worldview issue. And so if you follow, for example, a secular humanistic worldview, then family is a purely social construct that mankind invented somewhere along the evolutionary cycle in order to survive. And if mankind invented it, then we get to define it. But a Christian worldview would come along and say, well, God created human beings in an instantaneous act. And from the beginning, he bound people together into these groups we call family. And so family was conceived in the mind of God. And as he created humanity to live in this world, he did it in the context of family. And so if God created it, he defines it. And then we are accountable to him for what we do with it. Now, here's the thing. I'm not going to go today where some of you think I'm going to go with this. Uh, So I want to give a shout out to Jefferson Bethke and and a book that he's written called Take Back Your Family and and some corresponding podcasts and articles. And I'm using some of his language and his playbook today uh, for considering this critical subject. Now, at a deep level, I want us to wrestle with this question. What is God's good plan for families? Some of you are expecting me to get get old-fashioned and talk about how family needs to be a mom and a dad and two kids and a dog and a white picket fence. That's what we've come to refer to as the nuclear family. But I'm convinced that the nuclear family isn't old-fashioned enough It's actually quite a modern invention, like post-World War II America starting in the 1950s, where family is set up only as a springboard for the individual success of each person. Dad needs to be a success. Mom needs to be a success. We'll build our lives around making sure each kid is a success. This model is actually a wild departure from how the family used to operate, and we're gonna come back to that. But we're not just gonna get old-fashioned today. We're gonna go ancient. Back to the beginning, to the basics of what God designed this thing to do. So here's today's big idea. One of God's main solutions for a lost and broken world is family. so we're gonna go back to the basics, but, but where do we go to look for some of those basic truths? Well, certainly the Bible has given us some foundations. So husbands love their wives and kids. They are attentive first to the needs of their family. They're not harsh. They're spiritually leading the way. Wives are industrious and loving and laying a spiritual foundation in the home. Kids are obedient and responsive and treat each other and outsiders with respect and dignity. Grandparents stay engaged and offer support where needed. Blended families exist without division and separation and strife. Singles pursue God with a reckless abandon and serve Him with their whole heart. And so there there are some... Uh, there are some parameters here. These are part of the plan. But, but I want to go back to our origin story in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a paper Bible, Genesis is right at the beginning. Or your device on, uh, on the UVersion Bible app. We're going to be in Genesis 1, 26 through 30. And the story opens with heaven and earth being made. And the creation, it says, was formless and void, without shape or function or filling. And so God acted on his creative impulse, and he began to create. And he did two things specifically. It says that he, he decided to form and to fill. What does it mean that he formed creation? Well, he gave creation shape and separation, day from night, land from sea. And then it says he filled it. He filled it with his beauty, with his goodness, with his creativity, and with order. And as the crowning act of this entire narrative and the creation story, look what he does in Genesis 1, 26. It says, and then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The word here for man is ha-adam, what, what we translate as mankind or humankind. Now, if you go over to Genesis 2, 7, the Bible says that the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. The word for ground here is the word adama. So the human taken from the earth is the haadam adam taken from the adama. We're the original biodegradable containers made from the dust. We are temporary. We are limited. We are not God. We are finite and mortal and flawed. But, but look at what that second part says. While we were created from the earth, 126 also said, remember, that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And so this speaks to our incredible potential. Unlike anything else in creation, we have the divine in our DNA. As image bearers, then, we bring order and goodness and beauty into the world where there currently isn't any. And it's interesting to note that how the image of God was portrayed in creation. It doesn't show up in an individual job description. It doesn't show up in an edict about individual success or dignity. It shows up in the plural. If you look at 127 there, that next verse. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so when God wanted to reveal himself, he did it in, in, in two symbiotic halves. He did it by making a team. And then he put this team into the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This team was instantly giving a job to do. Look at 26 through 30. It says, and, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And so you have to understand that, that God gives this kind of directive, but outside of Eden, The rest of the world was largely wild and untamed. And so right from the the start, God has a problem to solve. Namely, that the rest of the world was devoid of God's presence and beauty. And so it's as if God pointed to the rest of the earth and he said, Now, Adam and Eve, your your job is to go make the rest of the world look like Eden. See, the solution for mankind is to build and to rule and to bring order and to, to bring shalom. Now, now, God knew this was a massive job, and so he says, you're going to need a lot of help, and so make sure to multiply yourself, or else you won't be able to get that job done. Have a bunch of other image bearers and get out there and bring my glory and beauty to the earth. Now, think about this from God's perspective. He, he wants to fill the earth with his blessing, with his shalom, but, but, but it's not out there yet. So how would you solve the problem? Some might say, well, I, you know, I'd create a, a business or I would start a nonprofit. I'd get my 501c3 together, I'd get a board of directors, I'd hire some employees, and let's get this thing rolling. Maybe you'd create an app or a tech solution. Maybe you'd get ChatGPT and say, let's AI our way to this solution. That's not what God did. Do you know what God created to solve this problem? Family. So so out of the very mind of God, his answer to bring order, to bring blessing into the world was to create two distinctly different humans who could create more humans and send them out into the world, a multi-generational family team. And the mission for this team remains the same even to this very day, bring God's glory and blessing to the world. So God's answer to the first problem in history, in our story, was a family. When I say this, some of you begin to feel guilt and you begin to feel shame. Some of you roll your eyes because that has not been even close to your experience. And when I say family, some of you get that picture in your head of that, that ideal that we talked about. Maybe the, the, the 1950s construct of a mom, a dad, two kids, a dog and a white picket fence. This is, the, the, this is only a modern American knockoff. It is not old fashioned enough. See, from the beginning, the covenant of God with his people was understood as a great extended family. And so family really is this kind of network of committed covenantal relationships. Bethke would define it this way. Family is a multi-generational team on mission. Now listen, before I take those components one at a time, I am not proposing today that our definition of family becomes just a free-for-all. I I acknowledge with everyone else, family is under attack. A Christian definition of family is under attack. I just want to make sure that we're defending the right thing and not just the American dream. Because as soon as I I know, as soon as I start messing with this definition, some people are going to think that I'm going rogue or I'm going woke or whatever your term is. Saying, you know, it's a slippery slope and he's going to start throwing in all kinds of stuff, gay marriage and life partners and any other crazy arrangement that somebody wants to define as a family. No, that's not where this is going. There are other aspects of Scripture and our moral beliefs that put parameters around some of those extremes. But what I'm suggesting is that that, that this definition that we're going to talk about today is not a free-for-all version, but it's also not the Norman Rockwell American Dream version either. I think there's a third way for us to think about family that I I believe is deeply biblical and is much closer to God's design than than our white picket fence version. So if family is a multi-generational team on mission, let's frame it this way. There's three crucial questions to ask about the basics of family. The first is, is your family exposed to a multi-generational influence? So family history, Generations of family just plays a huge role in helping us to define our identity. I think part of the reason so many people struggle in discovering their identity, especially young people, is because we've lost a sense of our family's story. I think the reason there's such a fascination with ancestry trackers and DNA services is there's just this hunger to know what story I'm a part of. What is my clan like? Who are my people? Where did I come from? In modern America, we've become very detached from our roots. Many cultures around the world, there's still a strong sense of kind of family dynasty, relatives and extended relatives and longtime family friends. They're all kind of part of the the, the picture for generations, even living under the same roof. Biblically, despite the flaws and foibles of many of the families in the Bible, there is still this sense of, uh, of who you are based on who you came from. You know, so even names represented family heritage. I'm the so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, who is the son of so-and-so. There, there's this sense that I'm part of this bigger, longer story. And, and here's what I would say. If, if you're not in your family writing a great, compelling story, your kids are going to go out and be captured by a lesser story. The New Testament book of Acts and some letters in the New Testament contain over a 100 uses of this Greek word oikos. Now, now it's the name of a brand of yogurt, but in the New Testament it means household. And this word holds the sense of a, of a homestead where people are living together for a common purpose, extended relatives and employees and servants. And Acts 16 tells this incredible story of Paul and Silas in prison and the Philippian jailer who thought he was dead because the prison broke open. And in Acts 16, 31, it says this. And listen to all the references to this word household or oikos. It says, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your, there's that word, household, your oikos. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, his household, his oikos. And he took them the same hour of the night and he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family, his oikos, his household. And then he brought them up into his household and he set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. And So there was this kind of, once one person was affected, everybody in the household was affected. Even in pre-1950 America, there was more of a sense of this multi-generational influence on a family, being big, sprawling households. I, I read in the 1800s some 90% of American families were either farmers or small business owners, like dry goods stores or whatever in little villages. People, families, need a lot of labor to run those enterprises, and so it was not uncommon for married couples to have seven or eight children. In addition, there might be aunts and uncles and cousins, as well as non-relatives, apprentices and farmhands, hanging around these households. And the dinner bell would ring, and a small army would come and eat together. But as factories opened in the big US cities, young men and women left those multi-generational arrangements to chase the American dream. The families that, that they started, what we would now call the nuclear family, would become this place where children were no longer raised to assume roles, obviously, on a farm or a family business. They were raised so that when they came of age, they would also fly the nest and become independent and seek partners of their own and repeat the whole process, move away, marry, have kids. And so they were raised for autonomy, not to belong to this kind of multi-generational tribe. And, and so in those days, the new focus of family became very child-centered. The family is focused on its own needs. People outside the family were secondary, and what it led to is some children being self-centered in their thinking and created a narrowing concentration of where that the greater good of society, or really anything outside the four walls, got little consideration. And and so having no real connection to extended family, the nuclear family became completely mobile, could move from city to city to pursue each new opportunity for individual family members. But what was lost in the process was this multi-generational influence and a sense that this family's deeper and longer identity and, and, and legacy in the world. Now, listen, this is not meant to be a source of guilt or shame especially for those of you listening to this who are separated maybe by miles from your extended family. I'm going to share in a moment how I think, even in a nuclear family world, how we can reclaim some multi-generational influence in new and creative ways. But I think this is so important because there's just something so profound that happens when you're connected to your story. Jefferson Bethke tells a story of going to Israel before he and his wife had their first child. They were going to stay there for a month, and that in that culture in that society with a family and so they sat down for their first sabbath meal with with their host family and jefferson said he was ready to, to pick up his fork and to dig into dinner but people kept coming in and coming in and multiple families came and extended relatives and kids and teenagers and adults and senior citizens and they started kind of chanting around the dinner table and he was fascinated because all of a sudden this meal wasn't utilitarian it wasn't fast it wasn't efficient it wasn't built around hurried schedules in fact Everyone's individual schedule was built around this moment every week. Before the meal began, the parents and the grandparents stood up and did something strange. They started going around the table to to all of the young people. They would grab their faces in their hands. They would look deeply into their eyes. They would put their hand on their heads and they spoke words of encouragement and blessing and scripture, nourishment to the soul to each of these young people. And he said none of the teenagers were rolling their eyes. There was no embarrassment. There was no knock it off, dad. There were no phones, no distractions, just slow, conversational, dynastic movements and conversations. Bethke said it was at that moment that he knew that what we had accepted was a subpar definition of family. Even the American Christian box we created was far too small for what God had in mind. And so how do we regain this kind of multi-generational influence in a nuclear family society? I think the answer is the church. Now, spoiler alert, next month we're gonna transition to talking about how the church was given by Jesus to be an extension of God's family on earth. And in the church, we we see this picture of all generations working and existing together in close proximity with one another. And what an opportunity for us to lean into multi-generational influence. So, So, if you are far away from your own mom and dad or your own grandparents, There are spiritual mothers and fathers and grandparents in the church. If you don't get to hang out with your own siblings very often, there are spiritual brothers and sisters in the church. If your grandparents are at a distance or they've passed away, there are older saints in the church who can be that for you. And I just want to urge younger people, especially with younger children, to seek out some older mentors. Invite them over for dinner. Take a ride. Get some ice cream. Go for a walk. Ask Tons of questions, and then just listen with your kids to the stories, to the wisdom, to the life experience. And and older saints who are watching, would you seek out ways to get proximal with younger people? Maybe it means volunteering in the kids or the youth departments at church, or seeking out a college student who would probably love a a home-cooked meal or a dozen cookies, or or lending a hand to an overwhelmed young mom or dad. But if if you're far from that multi-generational influence in your own family, borrow it from the church because I think the potential here is endless. And again, I'm gonna talk a lot more about this next month. But question one today is, is your family exposed to multi-generational influence? The second question is this, is your family functioning as a team? Again, this may require a little brain shift for some, but part of why the modern American view of family is failing is that we've put individual achievement above all. Uh, The primary goal of the American family is each individual's uninhibited freedom and ultimate success. And so we we have Johnny's piano lessons and scout meetings and jujitsu and four other activities that Johnny's in. And Susie has travel soccer and National Honor Society and her six other activities. And mom has hot yoga on Mondays and wine with the girls on Fridays and keeping up with the business she started from home. And dad has work time and gym time and golf with the boys time on Saturday mornings. And again, None of these things are bad in themselves, but we've arranged our lives and our family's lives around the success and autonomy of each individual. We're in proximity together. We may even all stay under the same roof, but everyone's going a million different directions. And as a result, as Mandy Lynn Catron recently noted in The Atlantic, she said, married people are less likely to visit parents and siblings, less inclined to help them do chores or offer emotional support instead. A code of family self-sufficiency prevails. Mom, dad, and the kids are on their own with a barrier around their island home. Now, the biblical notion of family inherently challenges and disrupts all of our concepts of individualism because guess what? Family's gonna ask something from you. This doesn't mean family represses the individual. That's fascism. Fascism says, you know, you all need to be repressed so that this other thing can win. That's not family. A better concept is a team. Because as a team wins, the individuals on that team win too. And so a coach wants each individual to improve, but, but, but it's not for the sake of the individual. It's for the sake of the team. And so all of the blood and all the sweat and all the tears and sacrifice, it leads to this beautiful team outcome. And so when the Bible talks about family roles, there's always this kind of teamwork involved, a mutual honoring at play. Listen to these excerpts from Ephesians 5 and 6 talking about the family. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see, family is not just there for your individual success family is going to require something from you sacrifice love honor respect discipline obedience that sounds like the makings of a team now, i don't know if you've ever been part of a great team maybe a sports team maybe a team at your company maybe a team around one of your hobbies but but a coach of a team has has things like goals and then strategies to reach those goals, and team meetings, and whiteboard sessions, and practices, and trainings, and discipline, and accountability, and the development of each player. And not so each one of those is great individually, but so that we can reach our goals as a team. I'm reminded of the 2004 U.S. men's basketball team, the dream team, one of the finest collections of basketball players in history. Huge talent, but also huge paycheck, huge egos, like LeBron, and Iverson, and Dwayne Wade, and Duncan, and Carmel, like these were the best in the world. Coach Larry Brown assured the United States that these superstars could play as a team. He was wrong. <laughs> in their game against the way overmatched Puerto Rico, well, in fact, one reporter described it this way. She said that the US team ran out onto the court to join their undersized opponents like a troop of Gullivers ambling into the VIP room of a Lilliputian nightclub. The US got destroyed by Puerto Rico by almost 20 points. They went on to a disappointing bronze medal finish. Why? Because a group of individual superstars couldn't figure out how to play as a team. Winning as a team requires a different mindset than winning as an individual. Teams need each other. They're not about the individual, but about the whole. Teams are about shared identity and shared mission. Good teams have things like traditions and secret handshakes and special uniforms and insider language and lots of training time and the excitement of game day and a lot of coaching and training and clearly defined goals. And so I ask, is your family functioning as a team? If you're a leader in that family, are you functioning as a coach? And speaking of goals, what is the team goal for a Christian family? Well, that brings us to our third question and back to our origin story where we began. You see, something happens between Genesis 1 and Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, there's a shift from have dominion over creation to be a blessing to all nations. God's mandate and purpose for his family is to be a blessing to others. That's the mission. And so our three crucial questions we were asking about the basics of family. Is your family exposed to multi-generational influence? Is your family functioning as a team? But here's the third question. Does your family have clarity around your mission? Are you focused on blessing others beyond the walls of your home? See, most American families are trained to consume rather than contribute. Did you know that on average, every American home contains more than 300,000 items? You know the average American child has around 238 toys, yet only plays with 12 of them daily. Did you know one-fourth of all families who own a two-car garage have it too full with junk to park in it? (laughs) Did you know that only 3% of the world's children live in the United States, yet they own 40% of the toys consumed and made globally? Like we're a bunch of consumers. And one of the reasons our kids only consume and consume and consume is because we haven't painted for them a grander vision and mission. So they're content with a lesser one. Let's go back to Genesis and and zoom in on one specific thought in Genesis 2.15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. See, See, God wanted people made in his image to keep his creation and to extend his glory to the earth. Notice worship in the beginning of the Bible was not singing and it wasn't raising hands. It was primarily centered around the job God gave us to do. The mission then was to make and to cultivate and to build and to steward and then to extend God's spiritual blessing to all creation in Genesis 12. Jesus doubled down when he appeared in his resurrected body, speaking and commissioning his disciples. He was reinstating the original mandate with a new flavor. It's the continuation of the same work, multiplying the loving reign and rule of God in the world. But but our way of life and the, the way of lives of our families what would demonstrate to the world what the king and his kingdom looks like. And the mission that he gave us says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So, so, So God brought your family together to be a team, stronger together than they could be separately, with one goal in mind, to do the job given in the beginning and reinforced by Jesus, to fill the earth with God's glory, to make disciples, of all nations. One of the reasons that I love to see whole families serving together at Servieri and other venues is is it's a reminder, there's a family on mission, and families taking in foster kids, and families serving in the church together. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will enter into the mission that God has given us as a team, standing on a multi-generational foundation. So we're gonna talk much more about these things in the coming weeks, but for now, let me challenge you with these next steps. One, will you commit to the series? Just make it a priority to not miss church during the month of July. And I know, I know, it's summer, everybody has stuff going on, but I just believe that God will honor your prioritization of him and his word and your soul as we explore this important subject of family. Let me just say this, that this talk of family may surface some wounds. It may surface some memories for some of you. And I just want you to know that you're loved, that this is a place of grace and mercy. Some of you come from a rough family. Maybe you made some mistakes with your own family. You're struggling right now to make sense of where you're at as a family. It doesn't matter what your household looks like right at this moment. You can start with some forward motion today. So we're gonna use these same three questions all month and reflect on uh, and take inventory of kinda where you're at with your own family situation. So I just wanna leave you with them as our second takeaway is to reflect on your family and ask these three questions. Are we exposed to multi-generational influences? Are we functioning as a team? And do we have clarity around our mission? I can't wait to explore these things further with you this month. Love you guys.